quick note before we get into today's episode. Sayer and I are working on growing the show to make it a better and better product for all listeners. And one way we're doing that is through Patreon. War Stories patrons get early access to all episodes, patron-only shows, and some behind-the-scenes access as we plan out future episodes and guests. If interested in supporting us directly, the link to do so is in the episode description, or you can head to our website, warstories.co. And as always, thank you all so, so much for your continued support. What's going on, everyone? Preston Stewart and Sarah Payne for War Stories. And today we got another kind of midweek, a little shorter episode here. I just wrapped up the book, Black Hearts. It's called Black Hearts, One Platoon's Descent into Madness in Iraq's Triangle of Death by Jim Frederick. And I think we're going to try to reach out to Jim and see if we can get him to come on here. But I wrapped up or listened to it over the last couple of weeks and reached out to Sayer and said, I think we should talk about this one a little bit. Not the book in specific, not the book specifically, but more of kind of what he gets into because it made me angry. Like I found myself angry reading the book. A quick, we're not going to get into the specifics of this event here, but for context, 2005, 2006, 101st Airborne in Iraq, it's the 1st Battalion, 502nd Infantry. So our sister battalion, Sarah and I were uh, 2502. They're in Southern Baghdad. And I don't want to get into the why this happened because I think that muddies the water a bit but a group of soldiers snuck off base raped a young girl like 12 13 I think burned her killed her and burned her body and killed her family a murder and eventually that was uncovered and it's just awful and it made me angry like angry that the soldiers did that because there's no there's no excuse for that at all. Like at the end of the day, no matter the circumstances, no matter what you're dealing with, everybody gets to make their own decision. Nobody made them do what they did. But I was also angry that they were there in the first place. Not, not big, big picture Iraq invasion. Like they were 18 to 22 year old kids. Maybe a couple were a little bit older in a random town in southern Baghdad trying to protect a street that I can't even find on a map now. Like for what? It was it was it was life or death every day for these guys and a lot of the people that they were around. And it was a no-win situation. Like when you really step back and look at it, and maybe it's because the book was written 11 years ago in 2011. Maybe it's now being able to look back on it 11 years later. I don't understand what they were doing there at all in the first place. To be exposed to those people in general? Like no infantry, counterinsurgency is so complex, right? Winning a population, rooting out an insurgency. And we're just not equipped for that. The average infantry platoon, the average U.S. Army unit, like it is so so challenging and it's not resolved in 12 months and you have to know all the. they went into things where they started raiding homes right and then people were like oh i can't keep my weapon in my house because the u.s will come in here and find it and i'll be hauled off to jail so they started putting it in their yard so then they started checking yards well then they thought you know what i'm going to do is i'm going to put it in my neighbor's yard and then when it, when it gets found like he's going to jail but then when people figured out that they were putting that insurgents were putting weapons in their neighbor's yard, 
they started to put weapons in their own yard. And when they got dug up, they'd say, not mine, must be my neighbor framing me. So this 22-year-old army lieutenant is standing there, doesn't speak Arabic, and has to figure out, is this guy, in what way, shape, or form is this guy telling the truth about this? And you have no way of knowing. You have no way of knowing if his neighbor is lying, if he's lying. You can't, you can't parse that. There's we'll no going. right decision. We'll keep asking the questions. Why though? Okay. You're saying, why were they there? Okay. Well, why were they, uh, why was hiding and burying weapons in their yard an issue? Like, why was that a mission for us U.S. guys at that time? Why were they doing that? So I want to stop you there because you, or not cut you off quick, but that's this rabbit hole I was going down where like, yes, you got to find the weapons because the weapons are being used to shoot and kill Americans and Iraqi policemen. But ask the question again. But then it keeps going and then it keeps going, right? You take the weapons, they build IEDs. You take the EFPs that are coming out of Iran, which I think was a little later than this, but take away the artillery shells, the mortar rounds that they're using for IEDs, build them out of fertilizer. Why are they building bombs and shooting at us to begin with? Like, why is that an issue? Like, why the need for any of it? I mean, I think that's what you're getting at part of it, too. It's, a, it's an awful, awful cycle. They were talking about this platoon, um, and I don't know how widespread this was, to, to be totally honest. I don't know if you heard stories about this. I don't remember hearing like guys brag about this at all, but I don't know. The platoon would rough up Iraqis. Like they'd go into a house and not find anything. And if the guy even gave him a little bit of a cross look, they'd smash his face in. Um, not enough to have to take him to the hospital, but like really rough him up. And okay, if somebody comes into your house today and does that, I don't care if you're completely innocent or partially guilty of anything. You get a buttstock across the face in front of your family. Your kids get thrown aside and you try to protect them and get kicked in the face. Like, look, you might not go all out suicide bomber insurgent the next week, but that's a step in the direction. You're pissed off. You're angry at the people wearing that uniform. And I think that's the distinction. I mean, that's what counterinsurgency is, right? I mean, what is the definition of it to start with? I mean, you were talking about that sort of um, type of warfare, I guess, as compared to conventional, right? That's what, I guess what's interesting about the Ukraine and Russia stuff is it's, it's a different, it's war, but it's a different type of war. Counterinsurgency, war, different type. Terrorism. Terrorism is a type, but I don't think it's counterinsurgency, though, either. Because I think there's this element of conventional forces and like military targets. Um, and it's involving the locale, right? It's the low you're fighting. It's the invading force that typically look different, speak different languages from different regions of the globe. And they're trying to force upon some, a new government, basically, upon the people. They think their government is the better one, you know, they being the invading force. And then the counterinsurgents think that theirs is the better one. But a lot of it is stems just from straight to violence. I think we've talked about it before, how I, I feel like all of these wars 
you've got the belligerents on each side, but they're, they're such a small minority. And these are the governments, the people ruling the governments. And then everybody else just gets trapped in the middle. It's just not, it's, it is kind of like the, uh, like the civil war, uh, the soldier in the South, I mean, had no real skin in the game at all. Like the privates dying in the civil war on both sides, of course, but especially the Southern one that was like a tradesman, how in the world, like if they're uneducated and you're like a worker, that's how you make a living. How in the world are you even supposed to compete with free labor? And so I think to think that they were like, they, I mean, they were just a pawn, you know, for these few on the sides. And I think that that's going to drum up over time. Once enough of these people start dying, what would you do? You know what I mean? Like nobody wants to die at the beginning. Nobody wants to die at any point, but when family and friends and it's not going as you thought, like maybe they, there are times where people are seen as liberators. Like the Russians would have been seen as liberators against the Nazi encampments. But then that turned south because they started forcing their stuff upon the populace and to do so they were killing people and they're killing relatives and family members and, and teachers, people, coaches, people you've known your whole entire life. And they're dying. They don't seem like bad guys to you. They've never seemed like a bad guy to you. You've looked up to these people. I guess part of my frustration, anger with this whole thing is like, if you just grab that unit, it's one five hundred two. I think it's Bravo Company. Um, but if you if you just grab that one unit and say you go out to the desert and go one on one against a unit from the Iraqi Republican Guard, they're equipped for that. That's what they're for. That's what they're supposed to do. If they can't do that, it's because they're not, they, they didn't receive the right training because they didn't have the right equipment or overmatch, whatever. Um, that's their job to fight and win wars. But if you just drop this unit in this, for, I don't care what led to their arrival um, or what happened after they left, but just this segment of time that they're in Southern Baghdad, I don't think that's the right tool for that job. It's like you can you can change a tire with a hammer, but it's not going to be pretty. And, and maybe you can't. You might not be able to get it done. Like, it's not a matter of they didn't get the right cultural training before they went over. That's not their job. That's not, that's not what this tool of international policy, international, um, yeah, international policy can, can do. It's, I think it was no win. It was a no-win situation, I think, for big picture, for platoons, squads, companies, battalions, brigades. We were asking them to do something they couldn't do. And what I'm describing is it's not unique to the 101st or this battalion. It's, it happens over and over again. Like, we literally did it to the Redcoats. You know, think of that tasking that those uh, English soldiers had. Um, I don't know the answer besides it must not be the right time to overthrow the government or whatever, because you said the, uh, like first battalion's mission is to fight and to win wars. Well, I don't know if what we did in Iraq or Afghanistan is really a war either, not in the, like the modern term. And we're talking about a modern army unit, military unit. It's a different thing when you're trying to forcibly change a government, 
but it's really just one singular government. It's not like we were trying to get a, and maybe we were right. People were going to have their hypothesis um, where it's like, con like conquest, right? Where you're just trying to, Alexander the Great is called the Great because he just kept expanding the borders and the Roman conquests. I feel like what Iraq and Afghanistan were was just within those borders trying to create a different type of government. And we did it with violent force, right? Words didn't work. So we did use violence and we did use the military for that. But my question is, if that is the future of warfare, but it's not is that a different style. It's not the future of warfare because look what's happening to Russia and Ukraine right now. Maybe well, there's going to be some sort of insurgency later, but we are what six months in, five, five and a half months in, um, as we sit here in early August, five plus months in to a full scale conventional war. What I'm saying is, and I'm thinking out loud here, is like, wouldn't you then recognize that there are sort of and I'll just say two because it's easier. Just two types of warfare. You've got the the Iraq Afghanistan stuff, conflict, low, low we'll intensity, them, maybe. Honestly, conflict. That's the word that we've used. That's how we get past the declaration of war and all that sort of stuff with Congress. The, these conflicts, and then you've got war. And so, wouldn't you have war units? So, if we, let's go back and talk. And let's just say Iraq and Afghanistan were a good idea, just for easy hypothetical, where very horrible regime, um, oppressing people, horrible, horrible, horrible. And it causes the international trigger to where it's unacceptable, regardless of what the people want. You're not allowed to be Nazis, that sort of thing. Um, wouldn't, then, wouldn't we want to deploy our regiments or brigades that are specialized in the coin stuff and these regime flips that require violence? pacification but also security and governance and stability and humanitarian aid all that other stuff that comes with it um the hearts and minds because you're not winning hearts and minds in war right because in war you're bombing rubber factories where you know that there are like civilians there that's the point that's the that's war like we really 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 tried to avoid that it happened and these sort of black hearts thing is totally unacceptable. But the unfortunate reality is that's the jacked up part about war. I mean, the unit that we replaced did the same sort of crap. Remember, there's a movie about it. Um, yeah. It's the unfortunate reality when you do these, when you bring these kids in and they're adults, but you put them in these uh, environments where really the course of things because of the violence issue that's the problem creates the dehumanization aspect which you constantly have to guard against but, you, but so you're talking about like a hypothetical group that we can put in there and what i'm saying though is i think if if that group today is the military if the future of war is low intensity conflicts these counterinsurgencies and the tool that we have to to fight that is the u.s military as it stands today then we have a problem because it didn't work and we've tried a lot of different ways over the last 20 years. If, if this is our answer to counterinsurgency, it's the wrong answer. I don't have the right answer, but this isn't working. Correct. I, I can agree with that. And on the flip side, I don't know how well we'll be at war because we got stretched pretty thin for 20 years doing something we couldn't handle.
or really shouldn't have um, been put in charge of like that. Um, I, I, and we weren't yeah. even in charge, right? That's the other balance of powers. It's not like the military was fully in charge of any of it. And that's the way things go. But it does make things hard to be consistent when you have all this overturn and disruption constantly in the part, government itself. Part of what I want to get at here is like it's hamstringing the soldiers. But like, you know, we talk about how many have you ever talked to somebody that was really happy with the ROE downrange in Iraq or Afghanistan? The rules of engagement when they could and couldn't engage when they could or couldn't drop bombs. I don't think I've ever heard anybody say, yeah, they were just perfect, <laughs> kept us protected and they were timely and, and effective. There's always an issue. But in that kind of fight, in the counterinsurgency fight, you have to have that sort of restraint. But that's not inherently what the military is violent. It's war. It's kill. It's destroy. So it's already kind of putting a damper on what the military is designed to do. And I do want to call out that I think the population level, hearts and minds, if we will, I don't think we have a solution for that. But there are parts of the last 20 years that have been highly successful, right? The initial invasion in Iraq, highly successful conventional military operation. The special operations raids for high value targets across Iraq and Afghanistan and other parts of the world, regardless of your feelings on the impact those actually had on the overall fight, we have some people that are very, very good at going into dangerous places in the middle of the night killing and capturing high value targets and getting out of there with minimal to no casualties. They're very good at that. But that Hard wasn't, skill. but that wasn't the whole thing. That was a part of it. Um, I don't think we're going to win a counterinsurgency fight by taking enough bad guys out with task force black or whatever. Um, but I don't want to run past that. I want to give credit where credit's due. Those, there are certain organizations that really honed their skills in the counterterrorism world. But where's the credit if taking that one person off the battlefield created five? Not even not insurgency. Well, yeah. that's it. Because are those, here's my question, those team black, are those teams used in war? Yeah, I guess I would say that their mission shifted to a different type of kinetic. Right? Instead of season, an air, instead of season an airfield, instead of a, a ranger company season an airfield. A ranger platoon went after an HVT in Kunar. So is that, again, we're talking two different types, war and conflict. Are they training for conflict? Are they, they're, they're talking about getting good at um, killing and capturing people, the violence part of the conflict, right? But my point is, back to counterinsurgency, why does counterinsurgency begin? What creates it? What causes people to take up arms against a stronger force with better technology, more military might, all that risk and danger of death and, and to your friends and family? It, I, I feel like it's these teams is, is a big part of it. I guess I, I opened a door there that I probably shouldn't have because we can nitpick these things to where like if we ever need to take one person off the battlefield, high value target, we have the capability to do that. But we also learned through it the last 20 years, good ways to resupply units in the Middle East and good ways to get wounded off the battlefield and combat. Like there's a ton of things, individual sure. things we learned from it. But I, I think I, I went too far down a rabbit hole there. 
need to pull back out and say this whole counterinsurgency, low intensity conflict, if you're calling it conflict instead of war, that thing, if that problem set arises in 2023, I am not confident that we can resolve it with our military. But what about war? More confident. Too many variables to just blanket say that, but probably more. more, more well, it's probably easier. Well, it's easier. Isn't it easier to do war when you can just kill everybody? Yeah. And then it just becomes I have more than you and better logistics. So I therefore I can kill more of you. That's just the cold truth of war. War is easy. Fighting someone, you know, not using words. Using words is a lot harder. Conversations, discussions, compromise. That's just so difficult Something compared to, to just being angry and trying to teach someone a lesson by physically forcing them to do something. Something that came to mind while I was reading this, and I don't know if I've told anybody this before, but before we went to Afghanistan in 2010, I remember I had a knife that was put in my kit, and I was thinking like, oh, I hope I don't have to use that. Like, it's a bad day if you're using that, right? And mm-hmm. Of course, never, never that situation never arose, but I remember thinking – if I could just sit down and talk with some of these Taliban guys, like I'm sure we could get along like person to person. We probably don't hate each other. Right. And it made me think of, I thought of that when I was reading this book, because at the end of the day, the population, the people, the citizens, they wanted security. They just didn't want to die. Right. They don't want to get blown up when they're driving to school. They don't want to get shot at by anybody. Um, they want peace. How could we not have ever, was that never in the cards to sit down? Like the squad leader, platoon leader, company commander, it was never in their control. Probably wasn't even the battalion commander's control. But is there not some sort of arrangement you can work with these insurgents? Hey, let's just make sure more people aren't dying. You guys run the power grid. We'll take that, whatever. How the hell did we kill Zawahiri yesterday? I'm sure it involved Taliban cooperation at some point. We used the Taliban as gate guards when we extracted. Um, All of it ends in treaties and settlement. It does end in words. You do have to let bygones be bygones or else you'll, you'll have a perpetual holocaust of revenge. It's like there was no punishment for the... And maybe there should have been, I mean, people want revenge. It's a hard, like, how do you do the thing with the South? Do you hang all the generals as traitors at the end? Because they were. But like, does that solve the problem? Is that going to help things or hurt things in the future? And it's so much bullshit. The same thing happened to Nazis. And it goes back to your like conversation with people. I hear what you're saying. But then go back to World War II. There's a difference between a German and a Nazi. And because there were guys that were in the SS and doing some evil shit knowingly, they weren't just Fritz from the village that just got called up and now he's fighting on the Eastern Front against a Soviet that got called up. Now he's fighting on their Western Front. That's a different situation than this knowing evil. And if they, even if they think it's good, they think it's good. They think that they're doing what's right for humanity. But from our vantage point and our values, it's defined as evil. 
And so when does that, and that's hard to solve with words. But so in this example, in, in black hearts, there are true believers on the other side. There were members of Al Qaeda in Iraq. I think at this time it was the Mujahideen Shura Council, some variation of what would eventually become ISIS. Horrible time to be in there in yeah. country. These these were the people that um, they hate you and I and all of the Westerners that were there. There was not going to be a um, sit down talking with those guys. They would they would kill an American given the opportunity not talk with them. This this is not. This was not the entire insurgency in Iraq by a long shot. In certain areas, it was heavier um, bent towards um, eventually Islamic State in Iraq. But a lot of these guys were, you know, there were local groups, local insurgencies, um, power brokers, mm -hmm. criminals even in some sense, um, or I guess what we might call criminals trying to take advantage of the opportunity, whatever. Or how about the guy who just got punched in the face trying to protect his kids from American soldiers? He's probably one of them too. Some of them you can't talk with. I got it. But I feel like there's just a big group out there that, hey, you guys do this. We'll do that. Let's call the IEDs. Let's get rid of the IEDs. We're not going to kill any more women and children with those. We're not going to kill any more American troops. Like, and maybe I missed it. Maybe these conversations were being had, but it didn't feel like it. I feel like, again, I, I do. I think that all these wars, no matter how nasty they've been, have ended in alliances, even in treaties and or trades. Can, you know, every it's like not that it never happened, but we're not going to talk about that anymore. Right. From here on. We, yes, we used to fight you. Look at our relationship with Japanese and the hatred. Towards Japan, it's diff a lot different. And even back then, it's not like it took. It didn't take three generations to repair that. I feel like it happened pretty fast. Um, and the consequence from that was like both our countries benefited. You know what I mean? Like if we would have today, continued today, that hatred, still mad about Japan and Mitsubishi, who they're the ones who, you know, provided the airplanes that bombed us, but it ended and we moved on. So my point is, if that is the eventual reality of things after a period of violence, that inevitably the parties combine somehow, that's what maybe, happens. Maybe, right? Has it? You can't say that it always will just because it's, it's something that has, right? When hasn't, like, it ends is what I'm saying. Can you name a, a constant perpetual war? Like the, vi I'm talking about the violence. It ends at a certain point. World War I ended. World War II ended. When Genghis Khan's conquest eventually ceased. We're getting past my area of expertise here, but can't we say that some of the crusades lasted even to modern day with some of the fighting around Israel? And Yeah. I don't know. I don't, the, I don't hey, know. That could, well, yeah. That goes back to the history doesn't repeat itself. It's just the same cycle that never ends. Yeah. Well, what I'm saying is. There's a possibility. I'll give you that for sure. Um, they tend to have treaties and they tend to, I think the violence tends to end. And that violence could end because one side just dominated the other. And they say, I am in charge now. I am your daddy. You have to listen to what I say. And, um, but 
that wouldn't work if it was so bad, it creates counterinsurgencies. Do you see my point? Because I think the counterinsurgency is almost inevitable if you are too forceful. I think it's going to create it. I think that's a human thing that eventually people, it doesn't mean that the, the bad guys in this instance don't make a lot of progress and kill a lot of people and all those sort of things. But I don't think they can have 100% say in things. They're going to have to only have 70% say, because if they want all of what they say, there's going to be a armed resistance. And the only way to do that then is like go old school and it's Holocaust. It's what Alexander would do, kill all the males, all that horrible stuff. Where, well, they, that's, what they, that's antiquity. They kill them all or they enslave them all and disperse them throughout their empire. That is what antiquity did. That's how they dealt with counterinsurgency. They didn't have it. So we have it because we have a different set of morals, which I think is a good thing. Um, in war, you're talking about 101st is to find and win wars. Yeah. And you do that by killing people and not allowing them to shoot you first. In counterinsurgency, it's a little different. Counterinsurgency, you're willing to stand and lean into the bullets first because that's part of the job. They got to prove that they're the bad guys. And once they do, you end it and try to reduce civilian casualties. But you cannot assume that they're the bad guy. In a war, you can assume that they're the bad guy. In a conflict, you can't. And it's a lot trickier, but it's a product of the modern era, I feel like. I think part of what bothers me with this, this thought, counterinsurgency, is that we don't, have, we don't have the answer. Like there's a lot of things you can look back in military history and say like, well, if they would have taken a left instead of a right, boom, there you go. Would have changed things. But like World War II in the Pacific, Marine landings at Tarawa, uh, November of 1942, they landed too far out. They hit some coral reefs. The, uh, the, the landing craft were flat bottom, couldn't get across. And the Marines had to wade in for hundreds of meters and got slaughtered because they're wading. I mean, how fast are you moving in chest and waist deep water, right? As the Japanese are sitting on the island, just mowing them down. It's a bloodbath. A year and a half later, yeah, about a year and a half later, Marines are landing at Iwo Jima, Okinawa in, in impressive displays. They got it all sorted out now, right? The CBs are going in, the, the, the frogmen are blowing holes and then passages, and they've got different kinds of landing craft and different kinds of air cover. Like, it's resolved. It's better. By the end of the war, the U.S. in the Pacific was an incredible amphibious force. But if we look back over the last 20 years and combining Iraq and Afghanistan, even though in a lot of ways there were very, very different fights, we increased conventional, decreased conventional, increased special operations tempo, pushed people out to live with the villagers. Nope, you're going to be on big bases, more raids, fewer raids, more aid, less like, I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. We tried 20 years, 40 years, really, between the two, that 35 years, Iraq wasn't as long. Didn't figure it out. That, bo that bothers me. I don't know. That bothers me. Uh, do you think the Iraq-Afghanistan conflict fighting was an improvement upon the Vietnam conflict fighting that we did? In some ways. I have to say yes, because... Overall. Fewer... 
Yes, but not by a lot. So we learned progress. Some of this is patience, I feel like. Can I give some context as to why I think that? Yeah, of course. Yeah. So, um, I think that we were still chasing a lot of objectives that maybe weren't necessary in Vietnam that was taking a hill that we'd give right back yeah. um, in a yeah. lot of cases. Oh, yeah. I think something very similar happened in Iraq and Afghanistan just over a longer period of time. We would take a street, we would take a village, we would air assault into a province and clear it out and then be gone. So I think we were doing some very similar tactics. I think we did so at a much lower loss of life and equipment. To me, that's a improvement, but I think big picture, it was pretty similar in strategy in pretty similar in the, the, you know, one of the major issues I have with the Vietnam war is you take a hill and you give it back, fight the, you fight for the hill because the enemy was there. But the nuance I feel like to that one, cause I agree is they were, they were taking a hill because the enemy was there and they wanted to kill as much of the enemy as possible as the goal. That was the reason for the hill. And then when the enemy were gone, there's no reason for that hill anymore. Ours, I feel like, were more disruption-oriented. And it wasn't necessary. It's like, we'll kill them if, they'll, if they fight us, if they come out. But we did that air assault in the middle of poppy harvest in the like that, I don't know if it was an IED node or a command control node or financial node, something like that, some sort of power neighborhood region. And we went there because of the poppy harvest, which is only like a 24 to 36 hour period, hoping that they would choose to, at this point, harvest the, the poppies more valuable than trying to fight with us at this time, which would give us sort of space to look for these caches, to just root around and to also show them that we can do this in your backyard. We'd never have really before. Um, with these big units, but we're going to do that too. So no place is safe. It wasn't necessarily to just kill all the guys in the field because even with the intel that this is like, you're going into the hornet's nest here, you know, they're all bad guys, but you can't act like that. If you knew they were all bad guys, that means as soon as we saw a, what was a military aged male or anybody, we shoot them. But that how was that, never, ever. How happened. is that drastically different than Vietnam era search and destroy? Still at great risk to the American boots on ground. But I think that the, again, what was the, why was that hill or village labeled an objective to begin with? I think that that nuance matters as I understand okay. the two. Yeah. I, I guess I'll take it back to, I'll give it some improvement, um, but maybe not as much as we could have hoped for over 50 years. I agree. It's very depressing to think, we know that the folly of Vietnam was 10 one-year wars fought over repeatedly. One-year wars fought 10 times, basically. And we did it for 20 years. We doubled that number. So that's definitely a loss. That is not a gain. But I think the net finished product is we, we lost a lot. Here's a big net from American lives. We don't know the other side. But American lives, we didn't lose near as many. We did it without a draft. I think those are two benefits. Um, I hope, I really hope that the civilian lives were less. 
you know, and just total lives in general, I would hope, because to me, that would be because if we don't want war and we do these conflicts, starting with Korea, which was not <laughs> that was horrible. Um, Vietnam, that was pretty bad, but probably better than Korea. Korea is still unresolved. So Korea really was kind of pointless, you know. Um, at least Vietnam is in the international market and sort of doing things and engaging as a trade partner. And we're all sort of getting along. That's kind of what we want. We get along with Japan, despite all the crap they did. That's sort of what we want is for people to be able to get along and trade and just play on the playground. Not everybody has to be friends. Not everybody can use the swing at the same time, but we got to find a way because it's like, we are confined. Well, uh, I'll, I'll put my closing thought here and then hand it over to you to wrap it up as well. But I think where this whole concept bothers me, counterinsurgency, is you can put things when we're not at war, there's uh, studies and papers and analysis and doctrine that's all written. Here's how it's going to work. And really, really smart people put that together. But you know, I'm, I'm, I'm drawing a line here. It's never this definitive, but it's drawn up during peacetime and it's what should work. It's your plan on paper. But then when, when a conflict kicks off, you actually get to test that theory in the field up against dynamic variables that are changing. All the, and enemy gets a vote, right? And that is when it's refined into here's how it actually works. That's the reason that our amphibious landings at the start of World War II were so bad, but by the end, they were so good. Um, my concern is we went through the whole put it out on paper phase between Vietnam and Iraq and Afghanistan, and we just had 20 years of tested out on the battlefield, and I don't think we have the answer. Five more years of studying it in papers is not going to produce that. It makes me feel unprepared for the next conflict like that, but I'll wrap it up with that, Sarah, whatever you got. I feel like we should always feel that way. We should always feel unprepared and question our abilities. And I hope other people are questioning their abilities. And we shouldn't be thinking that we're Billy Badass just because we won two world wars 80 years ago. And I don't give a shit. That's like arrogance. That's part of our problem is thinking that we can do and say whatever the hell we feel like on the playground. Like that gets annoying um, to everybody else. And then if that person is doing it because of strength, that's really annoying. So do you know what you do? You, you gather more people because you can't do it as an individual. So you gather more and more to be able to take down that person. And I think that, uh, uh, yeah, the war part is just so gross that the answer to it is to try to avoid it at all costs and not put yourself in these situations. And we've all talked, the thing is though, the, the naivety of us talking about this, I mean, these are from our, expect, our perspective as individuals who signed up to do those things for like our own reasons. And in reality, like Iraq or Afghanistan, are, are we there to like help the people? And like, you got like the Taliban or the pre-ISIS people. And like, that's some, they're doing things that are unacceptable. I feel like in all societies, you can't do those sort of things to human beings. Um, and we would like to think that we are helping to flip that to where the good guys, the quiet ones who don't have the force available to them, who are just being slaughtered for speaking up and butchered and living in uh, captivity, that we could be that strong arm that they needed 
willing to risk our lives to do that for them to help. We like to think that, but part of me also believes it's just to, it's, it's, it makes money. Our country is so entwined with that fact that it rises us out of depressions. It, it makes domestic companies international. It diversifies companies. It creates jobs. It furthers uh, global influence and trade. And that's a huge part of it. And that goes back to what I was saying at the beginning, where you've got these really minorities of people, the belligerents, and then all of us trapped in the middle, having to deal with it. And to your point, figure it out. There are no perfect answers. You just have to deal with what you have. Which well, is I why don't, don't put yourself in shitty situations if you don't need to. I don't necessarily feel any better, but it's good to talk through stuff like this. So, <laughs> and uh, that's what we got for now. Talk to you all soon. I hope you enjoyed today's show. If you like what we're doing, we'd really appreciate it if you'd leave a review on whatever platform you listen to podcasts on. It helps us get in front of new listeners and provides feedback on how we're doing. We'll see you next time.